Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The murder of Courtney Ashay Key, a Christmas Day killing. Friday, December 25th, 2020, Chicago, Illinois. Warning, the following episode you're about to listen to will contain audio evidence of misgendering. Listening discretion is advised. A homicide, and her family believes a hate crime. We are like constantly getting killed with our death going unnoticed. How relatives of this transgender woman claim police are mishandling the case. Good evening. Shot and killed on Christmas Day. Tonight, a transgender woman's family is speaking out, telling our Tara Molina not only was the murder a hate crime, but investigators are insulting the victim. She was listed as a John Doe. Courtney Ashaki's family says she was misgendered, and on top of everything, it's an insult to her and her memory. The life of the party, hilarious, determined. She wanted to be something. She wanted to beat the odds. That's how 25-year-old Courtney Ashea Key's family and friends described her. We are human. We are real. They have a problem with how she's being described elsewhere. We're tired of Chicago police misgendering trans people, gender non-conforming people. A trans woman. She's been identified as a John Doe. They're dehumanizing our character. We asked Chicago police about that. We were told, again, the victim is listed as a male. Told Area 2 detectives are still investigating the homicide. We know this is where she was found Christmas night, lying unresponsive on the side of East 82nd Street in Chatham. With gunshot wounds, she was pronounced dead at this scene. With only her family identifying her right now as they make funeral arrangements, we're told this is why they had to speak out. I believe Ishe was targeted. We need to get to the bottom of this because black trans lives matter. And we've been here and we're not going anywhere. According to CPD, detectives are still investigating this as a homicide, but they wouldn't comment on the family's belief that this could be a targeted hate crime. The medical examiner's office never responded to our requests for more information. Reporting outside CPD headquarters, I'm Tara Molina, CBS2 News. It's Friday, December 25th, 2020, in the city of Chicago, Illinois. It would be the home where 25-year-old African-American transgender female Courtney Ashea Key would reside. 
And when, on Christmas night, her body was discovered badly bleeding on the side of the East 82nd East Chatham Street, it would leave the community of Chicago cringing for answers for years to come. My audience, thank you all so much for being here for season four, episode five of A Hateful Homicide, The Murder of Courtney Key, A Christmas Day Killing. This case really gravitated towards me for several reasons. Not only was her hateful homicide committed on Christmas Day, which is a time for everyone, rightfully so, to be able to spend time with their loved ones, chosen or born into, but then also the vitality and the determination behind this young woman. She was determined to beat the odds and the mortality rate for trans women of color, especially our black and brown trans women in America is typically the age 35. Courtney had, with the hopes of that 2020 year, was hoping to not only continue to live her best life and close out the Christmas year, but she was also planning a New Year's Eve party. She was a member not only of the Key family, her biological family, but she was also a member of the Coors family, which is her chosen family. An organization that was based, um, an LGBTQ plus organization based out of the South Side of Chicago. The Coors family um, all had a group text and a group chat and also like a messenger communication on Facebook. And so on Christmas Day, they were all checking in with each other, wishing each other a happy holiday, a Merry Christmas. And one of the members of the Coors family, a good friend of Courtney's, was 29-year-old African-American cisgendered male, Bryant Crawl. He, as well as Courtney's best friend, 25-year-old African-American cisgendered male, Nathaniel Porter, realized around 9 p.m. they hadn't heard from Courtney since around 6.30. They typically wouldn't be alarmed, but because of our community, my audience as trans folks, and we know the violence, um, as we're going to hear throughout this case, the, the plaguing violence that is not only impacting the country, but definitely the city of Chicago. They knew that when they didn't hear from her, that something wasn't right. According to Brian Crawl, a really good friend of hers, he stated he didn't want to get too alarmed at the time because he knew that she was with her mother. They had this iPhone app that Courtney and the rest of the family would be able to track each other. And so they were able to see that her phone was over again off of the 82nd Street in East Chatham, which was near her mom's home. And that made sense because she was visiting her mother and her father and brother and sister on Christmas day and had been there and in communications with everyone until around 6.37 p.m. According to her family, she had left the home around 7.30 p.m. to go um, and just say hi to some other family members and friends, not preparing for what they were gonna be uh, waking up to just the following day uh, when police officers came to make that terrible news. However, on that Friday, December 25th of 2020, a police officer by the name of Chad, Chad Driscoll, Officer Chad, excuse me, Chad Driscoll, was um, doing a patrol around the East Chatham area. It was his designated route, and he was pulled in on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to do like a double shift. He was getting ready to wrap up, and he was doing his final rounds when he spotted a body of a young woman unresponsive. He went over to check on her and noticed that she was bleeding from the head. And of course he wanted to check for signs of life and noticed that there was still a slight pulse. 
Officer Driscoll then notifies the Chicago PD as well as the ambulatory team who all races out. They're there within the next 20 minutes and ultimately discover that Courtney has succumbed to her injuries and has died at 8.50 p.m. Central Standard Time. Her body is then taken to the Cook County Coroner's Office where they then go ahead and determine that her cause of death was gunshot wound to the head and her manner of death was homicide. They then, of course, didn't have any identification on Courtney's body, so there was no determination of who she was. And unfortunately, Officer Chad Driscoll and some of the other team members of the Law Enforcement Chicago Police Department didn't see the need to appropriately gender Courtney. So much to the pet, so much to the so that Courtney was um, misgendered and listed in the coroner and morgue's office as a John Doe. This then, of course, led for them to start looking um, and tracing her, um, her last steps and her identity through the LGBTQ plus community in Chicago. Officer Chad Driscoll figured he would start there. He also, and then the forensics team, which included Chuck Goody, as well as um, Tina Fields, they all went out and started canvassing and they noticed a, a blood trail um, that came from the alleyway. And they followed that blood trail through the back of the alleyway and they were able to discover Courtney's cell phone as well as her hairpiece. All of these things had been um, removed from her body at the time of discovery at 8.30 p.m. Um, which was one of the reasons why Officer Chad Driscoll was referring to her as Jundo because she didn't have her hairpiece. When they did discover her hairpiece just a few feet away along this bloody trailway, they were able to surmise that not only had Courtney been shot brutally in the head and left to die on the side of the winter cold night on Christmas day, but she had also been dragged from the alleyway to where her body was discovered on that corner of 82nd Street. She had been dragged by a motor vehicle and then ultimately left there. This completely shocked the community. And once they were able to go in and then ultimately determine Courtney's ID through um, identification, not only through her um, phone, but then also through fingerprint analysis, they then realized that Courtney not only was a resident of the, the East Chatham area, but that her mother and father resided just a few blocks away. Around just past midnight, the Keys family gets a knock on the door. They had went to bed around 10 p.m., not alarmed because they knew that Courtney, their second or fourth children, would normally go out and either hang out with her lovely queer community on the south side of Chicago or either she would go and visit her very other supportive family. This left her family completely devastated my audience. They were notified of Courtney's hateful homicide by Officer Chad Driscoll. He came into the home around 1230 a.m. and he stated that their daughter, Courtney Ashe Key, was dead that she had been found shot to death just a few hours before. The family was devastated and blindsided, had no idea that their daughter had not only been murdered, but that she had even uh, never made it to her family's home to even give out the rest of those gifts. They were completely shocked and also notified Officer Chad Driscoll to not misgender their daughter. Courtney's father, especially, was very determined to make sure that his daughter was not misgendered. He, along with a few fathers, like my, like my father as well, 
proved to be very supportive of their trans children. And Courtney's dad was no exception, as well as her mother and her older brother and two younger sisters. This completely, all tragically, um, just left this ache on Christmas Day, this family that loved the holidays, but also came from a low economic means. All of this was now impacting their mental health, losing their second or fourth child born, you know, excuse me, on Christmas Day. But then also the fact now they have to realize that she's been misgendered and they still have no idea who has committed this hateful homicide. As Chad, um, Officer Chad Driscoll is determined to assure that Courtney's case does not go cold, um, he continues to investigate and says that he will do his best to assure that his team, as well as the news media, um, affirms Courtney's gender identity. Her mother spoke fondly of Courtney, stating that she was the life of the party. She was energetic and every time she walked through the door she would be like a breath of fresh air she stayed with her parents periodically but mainly she resided over with the Coors family again her very beautiful queer community family in the south side of chicago they all decided to rally together because they knew that they all needed to find the, the resources the financial resources to prepare for courtney's um, burial as they're unraveling at the fact that they're Loved one has been met with this hateful homicide, shot in the head, drugged along an alleyway, losing her items, and then just left in the cold winter's night, snow covering her body. And fortunately, if it wasn't for Officer Chad Driscoll, she was at least able to get out of that cold. And that was one of the remarks that he made um, later on was that he was grateful that he was able to keep her from being too cold. He put his jacket around her and he was encouraging her to hold on. So one of the things that he shared, which impacted him very significantly was that he recalled just her being determined to still hold on. And unfortunately, um, her injuries were just too traumatic for survival. And that itself is what propelled him and the rest of the team to continue to search for this case. And unfortunately, my audience, as we continue to go through, we're going to see that not only um, Courtney was the 43rd trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary member of color murdered in the United States. And strangely enough, if we look at the census, especially our human rights campaign census of the 2020 year, a lot of those hateful homicides happened in the city of Chicago. Let's take a moment and hear a little bit about the violence that is rising towards our trans and NB community in the city of Chicago. The way in which people, trans and non-binary people, have been killed seems to be even more gruesome. It's crime you may not always hear about, and it's happening at what some say is an epidemic level. Anthony Ponce explains in tonight's special report. Coriant on fatal attacks against transgender people is a whole category of crimes that often goes unreported because advocates say standard crime data oftentimes doesn't tell the whole story behind the identity of the victim. But based on the data they do have, they say these murders are a problem that is getting worse and worse. <laughs> death of 33-year-old Tatiana LaBelle made headlines here just last month. The transgender woman's body was found in a garbage can in a south side alley. 
Tiara Banks, Desai Monei, and Brianna Hamilton were also part of Chicago's transgender community. They were all killed last year. Some of the trends that we've noticed is that the numbers continue to get higher and higher every year. The human rights campaign began tracking the number of transgender and gender non-conforming individuals who were the victims of fatal violence in the U.S. nearly 10 years ago. We've uh, unfortunately broken two grim records two years in a row, last year and the year before. Um, and the truth is we may be on track to do that yet again this year. Their numbers show at least 37 such deaths occurred in 2020 and at least 47 in 2021. That is a 27% increase. I'm 72 years old and across my lifetime, maybe 50, you know, it's the, this is the closest one. This was somebody that you know, played with my grandchildren. It has been six weeks since Alexis Martinez lost her friend, Elise Mallory. Both used to work together at the Chicago Therapy Collective in Andersonville. That is where there is a mural nearby remembering the transgender woman from Evanston and her advocacy work. So far, her cause of death is still undetermined. I don't know how to um, express just the, the fear or the levels of actual terror that you go through being trans. This isn't something that you do because, oh, you chose, it's kind of trendy or something. This is heartfelt. Alexis says a transgender person often becomes a victim of violent crime because they are forced to live on the streets at a young age. They can only survive by participating in, in um, the, the street economy, you know, selling drugs, selling their bodies you know, shoplifting, whatever it is that they can do to survive. Here's another unfortunate trend, that most of the people that we report on were killed by someone that they knew. That's incredibly frightening. Since 2013, 36% of the anti-trans violent deaths the human rights campaign has recorded were committed by an acquaintance of the victim, another 21% by the victim's intimate partner. If we can't trust people that we know, then who is it that we can trust? These statistics also indicate trans women of color seem to be at a greater risk of becoming a victim of violent crime. As black people, we're disproportionately impacted by fatal violence, number one. As trans people and gender minorities, as non-binary people, we're also more victimized um, because we're seen as less than and disposable. Cooper says social determinants like where a person lives or works also play a part. And the advocates we spoke with say the public would have a better idea of the number of violent deaths in the transgender community if the victim's identity was required to be recorded as how they live their life and not just what is listed on the driver's license. And as you could hear my audience, there is such a stigma and trauma around the, the trans community and the gender non-binary community. And one of the things that was reported was the social determinants. And that's one of the factors that played the key in Cora's family as they work in preparing um, to lay Courtney to rest. She was laid to rest on December 30th of 2020, five days after her hateful homicide. The family had not only done a GoFundMe, but the media um, in the city of Chicago really rallied around the key and Cora's family to not only assure that Courtney was gendered correctly as she should be, but also that the family did get awareness around the fact that they needed financial support to lay their daughter to rest. 
With this being said, the Keys family then became aware of the importance of trying to advocate and navigate for health insurance. And it's one of the things that they have started to do in the Chicago area. I'm living in Los Angeles, California myself. I know all too well that the health insurance piece is very important, not only just for your own health care, but then also the burial insurance to our life insurances. And unfortunately, a lot of us as trans people do not have employment. So we don't have life insurance unless it's something that may be fortunate your family has kept you on or a family member or friend. When that doesn't happen, we're in situations like this where we see with Courtney. Because there was no line of employment, um, Courtney was not employed at the time of her hateful homicide. She was not on any health or burial insurances. Um, her family, who also um, were of a different economic bracket, of a lower economic means, they did not have health and burial insurances. And so all of these things unfortunately impacted the, the response and how the community supported the Keys and Cora's family and they were able to lay Courtney to rest. At the same time, Officer Chad Driscoll made a discovery along that alleyway that they didn't notice the first time around. They were looking for the, the bullet casings, right? They wanted to get this over to ballistics. When he discovered Courtney's bloody body, dragged body off of the 82nd East Chatham Street. He realized that she had been shot in the head, but there was no bullet. When they went back a second time into that alleyway where they discovered her hairpiece and her iPhone, which is where the family members, the core family, had been texting and reaching out to her simultaneously as Officer Driscoll was notifying the ambulance, they realized that they had discovered a nine millimeter bullet casing, my audience. And this bullet casing would be key and pivotal because that would allow them to go and trace potentially where the murder weapon came from. As they're now taking this bullet to the ballistics team and of course wanting to verify that the DNA on the bullet is that of Courtney Shea Key, this beautiful 25-year-old African-American transgender female who was met with this Christmas Day killing on December 25th of 2020, that Friday night at 8.30 p.m. This left the community wondering exactly who committed this hateful homicide of Courtney Ashe Key. And as you heard in the other audio evidence, my audience, you would hear that sometimes 21% of the hateful homicides that happens to our trans community far too often is that of intimate partner violence. At the time of Courtney Shea's Key's hateful homicide, she was not in a intimate partner relationship. Um, she had dated previously, but she was not in a intimate partner relationship. So they was able to rule out that it was not someone of an intimate partner nature, but that didn't rule out potential friends, frenemies, or even just outright haters, right? You have people who target the trans community. And Courtney was very out and proud of her gender identity. Born March 25th of 1995, she was the second of four children born to the Keys family. Again, described as vibrant, lovely. She loved, loved skating. She loved singing. She loved dancing. She loved just living life. She was funnily known for going over to the beauty supply store and getting her products. And they would always just remember how lovely she was. And she would always say that, you know, she would um, do hair as well as a way of trying to make money and keep some income. And in the year of 2020, as it was preparing to close again, as I mentioned earlier, Courtney was preparing a New Year's Eve party to celebrate with her, her family chosen in bio. 
But then she was also looking forward to the 2021 New Year. At the time of her hateful homicide, it was nine months into the global pandemic known as COVID-19. And so there was these, still these um, safety, pro, uh, excuse me, COVID protocols that were in place. And so she was very cognizant as she was preparing for this New Year's Eve party. And she had a limited few people and they were talking about that in the group texts and stuff. Um, before her hateful homicide, just a couple hours later, they were talking about that on that Christmas night about like what they're gonna eat and who's gonna, what music they're gonna play. This is what her and the Coors family was discussing um, in part of that Christmas day conversation um, as she was preparing to go see some of her family members before she was abruptly blindsided and shot and then drug throughout the back alleyways in the south side of Chicago. This was what she was looking forward to. She was also looking forward to in the 2021 New Year to go to school. She had actually realized that, and she had graduated from high school back in 2013, but that was as far as her education had went, but she had always wanted to go to like a technical school and again, and really strengthen her cosmetology and hairstyling skills on a professional level. She saw herself opening up as it was gonna be called Coco's, um, uh, Coco's Boutique, and it was gonna be not only a place where you could um, get clothing items she wanted to um, have like a consignment shop where community members especially of the trans and non-binary and intersex and two-spirit um, identities could come in and have a safe space in Chicago to purchase clothes and not necessarily feel binary or othered so she was very intentional on wanting to create that space and she was um, discussing with her best friend Nathaniel Porter and her good friend Brian Crawl on on ways to like make that happen um, one of the things that she was going to do with this consignment, this Coco's Boutique, was again have a hair salon piece in there too. So if community wanted to have this full experience of not only um, getting nice clothes that was donated, but then also being able to get a nice hairstyle or haircut or whatever look you were going for, Courtney wanted to provide that at Coco's Boutique. And she was going to start the planning phases for that in the beginning of the 2021 New Year. Unfortunately, that all came to a screeching and abruptly end on December 25th of 2020, officially at 8.50 p.m. Central Standard Time. As we continue to go through this case, my audience, I want to also take another um, clipping and share with you. Hear a little bit from some of the families of victims who have been met with a hateful homicide. So many times, as we've shared and went through four seasons here, we've discussed, right, the fact that our community members oftentimes don't have a supportive family. But what happens when they do? We know that when a victim is met with a hateful homicide, it's not just them who is greatly impacted. It is the ones that they leave behind. As many Chicago area transgender and non-conforming people looking for answers, since the American Medical Association branded it an epidemic of violence, the killings of transgender women, particularly those of color, continue at a concerning rate. What's fueling the increase and the I-team tonight with new accusations of discrimination by Chicago authorities? January 17, 2021, the body of Sherry Nicholas is found in her room at the Jackson Park Supportive Living Facility on Chicago's South Side. Jerry Nicholas claiming Chicago police did not take his transgender daughter's death seriously from the beginning because of who she was. This is a, a parent natural cause. 
Nicholas telling the I-Team authorities misgendered her, and he says there is evidence of foul play that was ignored. In an email to Nicholas, CPD declaring a thorough investigation found no evidence of murder and the case closed. The autopsy finding, cause of death, is undetermined. But a mysterious note allegedly written to the Nicholas family urging news involvement fuels this father's speculation. She's gonna be missed forever. <laughs> An I-team analysis of the latest numbers from 2020 to right now tracks eight trans homicides in Chicago, with even more cases suspected of going unreported. All victims are women of color. We're seeing geographic concentration in certain states and certain cities. Um, Chicago being one of the cities in our database with the most uh, transgender homicides. In 2022, the Chicago area reeling from three deaths. Martasia Richmond is found stabbed to death on a porch in July. Daniel Burley, described as her partner, is charged with murder. Lawyers say he acted in self-defense. In March, Tatiana LaBelle's remains are discovered stuffed in the trash on the city's east side. No arrests yet. And a day later in Evanston, transgender activist Elise Mallory's body is discovered in Lake Michigan. Her death now listed as drowning, but the medical examiner's office is unable to rule if it was accidental or murder. The clearance rates in our data are far below the national average for non-transgender homicide rates, and the clearance rates in Chicago are much lower. Florida State University is compiling a database to keep tally on cases and the outcomes. Definitely shows that um, there's a, a pattern of neglect. National and local activists calling for police to stop misgendering victims and to take the crimes more seriously, including classifying the homicides as transgender. That is definitely something that is important so communities know where the disparities lie. For more than a week, Chicago police officials told the I-Team they wanted to do an interview for this report, but never provided anyone to speak on camera. Transgender activists are more forthcoming. Most, if not all the time, trans people are murdered by the, someone that they care for or someone that they're doing um, uh, survival sex work with. And we don't normally talk about that. Four of the eight Chicago cases have resulted in charges, including the murder of Courtney Ashe Key, shot to death here on Chicago's South Side in 2020. 62-year-old William Truss accused of killing Key after allegedly soliciting her for sex. Truss will be pleading not guilty, according to his attorney, who says he's innocent. She left her footprint on your soul, on your heart. Key's support network telling the I-Team the arrest is progress, but that more is needed. This is a kickstart point for, for, for everybody, for real, for real. This is a, like I said, it's a victory, so we, we won up right now. Jerry Nicholas with his own small victory. The Civilian Office of Police Accountability, COPA, tonight referring Nicholas's complaint to the newly launched mediation pilot program. They can correct us and show the LGBT community that they care about them also. That's what I want. A spokesperson for the Supportive Living Facility telling the I-Team they fully cooperated with CPD's investigation. Community activists telling the I-Team that trans and non-conforming deaths could decrease if there was more social acceptance and economic opportunities. Hey, if you like that video, be sure to subscribe to our ABC7 Chicago YouTube channel. So my audience, as you could hear, the violence towards our black and brown trans women of color 
as well has been so propelled and perpetuated in the city of Chicago that there is a growing concern. Is there an epidemic of violence targeting the trans community, specifically geographically isolating in the city of Chicago? You know, please answer that on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, my audience, and and just think about that as we continue to go through this case. As Officer Chadra School was navigating the hateful homicide of, again, Courtney Ashe, this beautiful 25-year-old black trans woman who was full of life, we discovered um, as we as I was going through this case um, that Officer Chadra School, um, he, he stated to me that he was really, again, determined to help this young woman's um, case be solved, but also for her case to have justice. Finding her, um, he recalled that he was tired. Um, he wasn't expecting to encounter the scene that he did. Um, and because of that, because of this was his like last round for the night and encountering that on that winter's night over on 82nd Street in the East Chatham area, this left him determined and so he continued to investigate and investigate and one of the things that they were able to do over in the south side chicago area was um look at some ccv uh, cctv footage and they were able to determine that there was a vehicle that had pulled up um to courtney she had started um you could see where she was leaving her mother and father's home um a couple of blocks away and you can see where she she's walking and then um just before the alleyway um, the CCTV footage from um, a, a neighborhood um, apartment complex across where she was walking from captured Courtney stopping, um, leaning over to talk with someone. Um, Officer Chad Driscoll, as he's looking at this, wasn't sure um, if Courtney knew the, the person. Again, this is one of the things that we talk about in these cases is that sometimes we know the perpetrators and sometimes we don't. And that wasn't clear by just looking at the CCTV footage. But what you could see then is that Courtney um, steps back and you see the car door open on the driver's side. This shadowy figure get out. Courtney, um, because it was um, snowing and it was winter time, it looks like she slipped. Um, And before you know it, he was um, standing over her. And then you could see like this flash golf and that was around 8 28 p.m um central standard time um and then um what you see uh, next on the surveillance uh, footage is him going to um, the trunk of his car he grabs something out of the trunk of his car ties her to the back of it and then you can see where, and again, it's, it's dark out. It's 8.30 p.m. It's not as lit over in the south side of Chicago, keep in mind. Um, so you can see an object being the car dragging because you can see the brake lights and things. So you can see the object and the, the string. And then ultimately, um, what you don't see um, on the CCTV footage is him dropping Courtney's body off on that corner. But you can see um, that horrific footage. They uh, wanted to, especially Officer Chad Driscoll and Tina Fields, um, the forensics team, as they were all looking through this, they wanted to see if they were able to zoom in a little bit more, get a hyper focus on the license plate, um, as well as to see if they were even able to get some kind of facial recognition of the perpetrator. They were able to do 
some sort of analysis and and pinpoint his height um, as well as get a little bit of the license plate number that started to narrow down the identities of the individuals they were determined that um, they were able to determine that the vehicle um, was that of a 2012 Chevrolet Malibu a dark colored Chevrolet Malibu and as they continued to go through, they realized that um, an individual, an African-American cisgendered male, age 62, by the name of William True, was the, was the person who had approached Courtney on uh, that night around 8.25 p.m. All of this happened so quickly. Um, and they brought him in. Officer Chad Driscoll brought him in officially. Um, it, it took a while. Um, and let's keep in mind the timeline of this would have been um, between December of 2020 to when they officially was able to get all of that uh, footage um, uploaded and focused. This took about six months. So he wasn't officially brought in my audience until the summer of 2021, around July. He was brought in and questioned around his encounter with Courtney. And he stated that he thought that she was a survival sex worker and approached her. Um, she leaned in. She stated that she was not interested. He, who had had marital troubles and was upset that his Christmas didn't go as planned, was already upset and angry. He had been drinking, according to him. And when Courtney, as he would describe to um, Agent Tina Fields specifically, as he didn't want to be interviewed by Officer Chadris, so he didn't want to be um, confronted by another man. So Agent Tina Fields went in and did the um, interrogation. And he stated that when Courtney refused him, he got enraged because he felt that she should be thankful that he wanted her. Keep in mind that Courtney, at the time of her hateful homicide, was 25 and William is 62 at the time. So the likelihood of her in that way being interested in him was unlikely. Again, she wasn't um, a survival sex worker and she wasn't partnered. She was taking um, gifts over to her loved ones, which the gifts were never found. And um, he stated that he, you know, got out. He started yelling at her. She was trying to flee. She slipped. He grabbed his weapon, um, which included that nine millimeter casing. And the DNA ballistics had proven that the, the, the bullet that was found in that alleyway, that nine millimeter casing, had DNA and biological evidence of that according to Sheikh Heath. And he confirmed that it was his murder weapon and that it was him. However, he stated that it was an accident. And so right now, um, as of 2022, he is slowly but surely preparing for trial. And I do intend to keep each and every one of you, my audience, updated on his hateful homicide. I want to also take a moment and hear from an incredible accomplice out of the UK. His name is Karami, and he has an incredible vlog called A Satanic um, Panic. Um, he's a good friend of mine, and he talks about the hateful homicide of Courtney and Shaky and the violence that goes there. And then lastly, I want us to take a moment and hear from um, an older black cisgender male who, um, too, along the same age range of William Drew, who, committed, uh, who allegedly committed this hateful homicide, 
shares his own partakes and experiences with um, dating um, trans women of color in the city of Chicago. But before that, let's take a moment and hear from Karami and how he feels about the hateful homicide of Courtney Ashaki. Now, one of the things that Lesage Wade said to me, and this really, you know, just hit me hard, is the fact that, you know, the family is poor and struggling and the fact that, you know, they can't, they didn't have health insurance and now they can't even afford a burial. All right, that this is really, not, not only is it, is it sad enough that they lost their daughter or, 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 or their relative or on Christmas, mind you, Christmas, a day that you're supposed to be with your family. You know, you're, you're preparing yourself for the end of the year and then starting a new year, fresh start, new year, new you. And then, and then this woman gets murdered by some freak with a gun. And, I, and let me tell you something, I probably already know who the killer is. And, you know, I, I can't really say it because people are going to start acting crazy and start, you know, saying all sorts of shit about me. Oh, Kwame, you're this, Kwame, you're that, Kwame, you're this, Kwame, you're that. And I'm like, it's the same shit that keeps happening over and over and over again. And nobody wants to talk about it. The black community doesn't want to talk about it. You don't see anyone else really talking about this shit. And, yet, and that's the reason why it keeps fucking happening. Because people aren't saying shit and people aren't doing anything and people aren't making the proper steps to try and stop this thing from happening. Now, to elaborate on what Lasagia said about, you know, the insurancing, this just goes to hammer down that a lot of these, quote, woke people that want to come and come at me and get mad at me about, like, fucking uh, presidential candidates and politicians that I refuse to support. And I'm like, you know what? Those people are clearly out of touch. They want to come at me and say, oh, Kwame, you're not really a good ally because you don't support fucking Joe Biden. You don't support the Democratic Party. Now you heard, now you heard what Lasagia said. The family is poor and the family doesn't have health insurance. All right. What the fuck is the Democratic Party going to fucking do? The Democratic Party has said time and time again, they give the middle finger to poor people. They give the middle finger to black people. They give the middle finger to people that don't have health insurance. And because of all this, they pegged, they basically gave the middle finger to the trans community. Because I know a lot of trans people that don't have health insurance. Not just, not just in Chicago, in Philadelphia, in New Jersey, in New York, in Baltimore. All the, ple all the places that I've visited. A lot of my trans friends don't have health insurance and they can't afford Obamacare because Obamacare is too fucking expensive. It's too fucking expensive. I mean, people want to say, Obamacare is socialism, anything. Obamacare is privatized health insurance. It's fucking expensive as hell to get on Obamacare. I looked on the website the other day. They tell me, oh, you got to pay $250 for a fucking goat plan. Why the fuck I got to pay $250 for a goat plan? I'm practically living paycheck to paycheck as it is. And then you have the fucking individual mandate and all that other shit that just makes it even more fucking expensive. And this is why I need to. Uh, this is why I say we need to have politicians that support Medicare for all. But when I say that, people want to say, "Oh, well, well, you, you, you just like you just like a Trump supporter." Oh, Kwame, you, you, you just hate trans people. Kwame, this and that. And Kwame, I'm like, but I'm like, you realize that universal health care would help everybody in the United States, including those in the LGBTQ community. But nobody wants to speak about this. They, they just want to go based on party lines. Oh, toe party lines. Oh, I'm a zombie. I support the Democratic Party. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fuck off. And you want to say I'm not a fucking ally. No, you're not a fucking ally. You know, this story just really pisses me off. Because not only are we talking about the murder of a trans woman, but we're also talking about, you know, how the system is screwing over the poor. 
I don't foresee things changing in 2021. I, I seriously doubt the Biden administration is going to try and stop this. I seriously doubt the, that the Biden administration is going to, you know, do its part in, you know, adding protections so that transgender people don't have to go through this shit. Don't have to go through the murders, don't have to go through being misgendered, don't have to go with, you know, living life without fucking health insurance. It's going to be the same old shit over and fucking over and over again. And as you can hear my audience, Karami is very passionate. Um, he's always been that way since I've known him now for five years. And um, as you can hear, yeah, he is an incredible ally, but he has his own political views. And that is the, the beauty about having conversations and hearing different perspectives around like these types of violences. And, and that was the beauty here too, that you could hear that from his take that there was a heavy need. And again, I had mentioned earlier around like living in Los Angeles, California, and also the fact that, you know, for Unfortunately, here they do have LA Care Medical, and that has really been beneficial for the LGBTQ plus community. But there are other insurance plans, such as Kaiser and other places here, that is still very challenging. Even though supposed to be affirming healthcare insurances, so while there has been some progress in certain cities and spaces to have affirming healthcare for our TGI community. Like Karami said, there's still a lot of places, even in the United States, where we have a lot of work to be done. As we prepare to get ready to close this case, I wanted to just have you to take a moment and hear from an incredible um, a, a man um, who, um, his name is John, and he um, is a 62 as well, like the alleged perpetrator of um, Courtney Key. And he talks about his own relationships with trans women um, starting back in the 70s and so forth. And I thought it was really important to hear that because so many times I think what we don't hear is from um, our cis men community talking about the, the love that they have for our trans identified folks. And so like you heard from um, Jerry Nichols in the uh, other audio, he loved his daughter. Courtney's family loved her. Karami, who's a cis head man, also um, is a huge supporter and love for the trans community. So let's take a moment and hear from John and his take on the dating aspect of dating trans women. What part? About trans women being so beautiful and important. I just want to edge that into my memory one more time. <laughs> I think trans women are beautiful. They're willing to do whatever it takes to make their bodies match on the outside. Who yeah. they are on the inside. So they have this vision of, of loveliness and they're willing to do. Yeah. Um, if it takes surgery, if it takes electrolysis, whatever it is that it takes, they are willing to do. Mm. And some of them are some of the most gorgeous women you want to see, ever want to see. <laughs> yeah. And when I talk to straight women, like my wife, cis women, um, my wife is like, well, that's, that's phony. That's this, that's that. I don't care. <laughs> Look at this person. This person is gorgeous. Mm. This person is really pretty. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to do this. And my wife is like, well, yeah, if you like fake, you know, being to be, you know, being that implants things like that for mm -hmm. I, I truly don't care about that so I don't know that's kind of like where, where we're at right now 
And as you can hear my audience, you know, he was very affirming of the trans femme experience. And as we prepare to conclude this case, this horrific, horrific, hateful homicide that of Courtney Shakey, beautiful black 25-year-old trans woman who was the life of the party, a breath of fresh air, a daughter, a sister, a beautician, an advocate, and also a woman who knew her purpose and worth. When that perpetrator confronted her in that alleyway on that December 25th night, that Christmas day, Courtney told him no. She said, not I. I am not someone who you will think that you can just come and solicit sex from. And that enraged him. And as a result of her saying no and advocating for herself, she lost her life at 8.50 p.m. on Christmas Day in the city of Chicago, Illinois. My sister, beautiful Courtney Shaky, we remember you yesterday, today, tomorrow, forever and always. Born March 25th, 1995, and resting on since December 25th of 2020. Oh, my audience, thank you all so much for tuning in to season four, episode five of A Hateful Homicide. Again, the murder of Courtney, a shaky, a Christmas Day killing. My name is Mallory Jenner Robinson, your host. Thank you all again for taking a moment to listen in today. Please enjoy your Christmas holiday, your Kwanzaa, and of course, as Hanukkah is closing, Feliz Navidad to you and your families. And please stay safe. Know, Know that our community, the trans community, continuously needs your support. As you heard, the city of Chicago is going through a plague of violence, um, like so many other places. So let's continue to do our part and raise awareness so that way victims like Courtney and others, their deaths don't go in vain. Until next time, please, please continue to follow us on Instagram at A Hateful Homicide. Check out our website at ahatefulhomicide.net. You can follow me at MalloryJenna90. And also, please, please know that I appreciate your continuous love and support of A Hateful Homicide. Have a great day, and I look forward to connecting with you all next week. (laughs) Bye-bye.